This week and next, we're talking about Jesus and his church. Jesus and his church. First with chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, that he is the head. He is the head of the church. And then next week, we look at the responsibility and the accountability that the church has. So at this point in chapter 1, we're still kind of at a sort of introduction to beginning the book of Revelation. But today is also going to begin an exploration of some deep, meaningful symbolism and rich implications. So here we go. At this point in his life, old man John would have not only immersed himself in Old Testament stories and promises, but he also has in his memory the life and the teachings of Jesus decades ago that he had experiences with Jesus and all the developments and successes and obstacles of the early church. And then he also has the letters of Paul and of Peter. John had a rich personal experience to draw from, an unprecedented season of history when the formation of scripture as we know it, not as he would have known it, is flourishing. There is no time like this when so much of our scripture is developed in in such a specific time frame. And that's when he became possessed. Now, I know we don't like that word, possessed, because it conjures up images of, of movie scenes or accounts of biblical possession. But what possessed, or, or maybe better yet, what spiritually overcame John, what overwhelmed him in an intentional, powerful, even controlling manner wasn't evil. It doesn't mean it was comfortable for him. It basically scared him to death. More on that in a bit. But in the very midst of fear, he heard a voice that he recognized very well. A voice that he hadn't heard in decades. I am. I am. I am the firstborn, the first and the last, the living one, I am. John's old. He's, he's in exile. He's already had more than his fair share of contributions to the canon of scripture and the life of the early church. He should be retired or something like that. But God wasn't done with him. He had one more powerful job for him to do. It would be the work of a lifetime. Like I said before, here we go. The critical message of the great reveal came to John while he was on the island of Patmos, exiled, but not alone, as we just talked about. And by extension, it came to the seven churches amidst their struggles in order to encourage them and and allow them to persevere in their faithfulness. What's threatening them? Well, danger and, and death in very real ways. Once again, this is a critical key ever since week one to understanding Revelation and to understand the environment of persecution around them, of tribulation. And so the one who has control over danger and death comes to them. He knows their situation even better than they do. 
Isn't that easy for us to look back and go, oh yeah, yeah, he does. He's a good God. A little bit harder for us to do when we're facing trials and tribulations, right? He knows their situation even better than they do. Let the reader understand. Okay, there are five things right off the top that I want us to understand. I want us to decipher these things or, or decode these things. That doesn't mean that they're written in code, but we just kind of have to interpret them or translate them. If we get these five things, we're well on our way to the powerful conclusion to chapter one and the beginning of rich prophecy. So if you're taking notes or not, or listening online or however you're engaging, here's the five things. I'll, I'll sl- go over them slow in case you're gonna write them down. In the spirit, you can just write those three words. That's the first one, in the spirit. If you wanna be technical, capitalize the S. In the spirit. Second, on the Lord's day. Third, write what you see in a book and send it. That one may take a couple more seconds to write. (laughs) Write what you see in a book and send it. Next, a little easier to write, seven, like the number seven. And lastly, son of man. In the spirit, on the Lord's day, write what you see in a book and send it, seven, son of man. You're going to catch those five things uh, as we set up this passage, and, and some will be quicker and easier to notice what they mean than others. I want to read the first few verses of this week's passage. I, John, verse 9, your brother and partner in in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. From that passage right there, we get three of the five things. Three of the five things we need to decode, decipher, understand from Old Testament eyes. First is in the spirit. This phrase, this concept in the spirit is not unique to just mention in this chapter one right here. John was in the spirit on three other pivotal times in Revelation. So note takers, you may want to keep going with these references. He was in the spirit also in chapter four, verse two. Chapter four, verse two. At once, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Chapter 17, verse three. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And then chapter 21, verses 9 through 10. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So 
This term in the spirit comes up four times throughout Revelation at pivotal times, and it's not unique to Revelation alone. In the spirit is also included in Ezekiel. Those, uh, these maybe you don't need to write down unless you're looking for extra reference work. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them, and the sound of a great earthquake. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. Ezekiel eleven twenty four, and the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea, to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me. And then Ezekiel thirty seven one, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out of the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. Some of you are going, man. Sounds like after I read Revelation, I got to go back and try to understand Ezekiel. Yeah, understanding one will actually help you understand the other, and it's true for the book of Daniel as well. So what is this? Being in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is supernaturally enabling an experience based on what he intends to reveal. Superimposing over the senses and the limitations of our body. So it's, it's like God's kind of rewiring, overtaking John. He was in the hands, completely under the control of the Spirit in order to experience and retell what he would see. So this is why I called it almost like a divine possession. I'm taking you. I'm going to control you. He was in the Spirit. That's how he saw and experienced these things, in the Spirit. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Okay, this one isn't complex. Most agree that on the Lord's day is simply referring to Sunday. Okay, don't confuse this on the Lord's day. Don't confuse that with the day of the Lord that we talked about last week. I know it's weird in our English language. You're like, on the Lord's day and the day of the Lord, that's, that's the same thing. No, the day of the Lord is a coming day of judgment, of great judgment with the cloud rider and all that kind of stuff we talked about. On the Lord's day is just referring to the day of the week that centers around Jesus' resurrection, Sunday. Centered around his mighty resurrection. And it couldn't be more fitting that with what Jesus is going to tell John and what Jesus is going to show John, that he experienced it on the Lord's day, on the Sunday, on the day that centered and focused and celebrated and remembered his resurrection, that he is alive, he's the living one. It's like God knows exactly, precisely what he's doing. His timing, like we talked about last week, is perfect. I know the exact day of the week that I'm going to come to John. In the Spirit, on the Lord's day. And then Jesus tells him, write what you see in a book and send it. Now, this isn't some code there that we have to hear, but all that I want to point out here is that this telling John, I'm going to give you this revelation. I want you to write it down and I want you to send it. That makes this distinct from other prophecies throughout scripture that when Daniel received a prophecy, um, Daniel chapter 12, 
He was told, write what you hear and seal it. You're not sharing this. Isaiah 29, same things. They're written in scrolls and then they're concealed. Not to be shared just yet. This is a prophecy that when he gets it, he is told, write what you see and send it. This is a prophecy that needs to be shared. People need to hear this right now. Send it. They need to receive this message I'm entrusting to you. So that's three of the five things that we need to understand, discern. The passage continues, and we get the two other things that I want us to understand. We're not going to read through all the passages each week, um, but we will finish this first chapter. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, the one that said all these things. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a white robe and with golden, a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive evermore, forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Seven. That's the fourth thing you wrote down if you wrote it down. Remember what this number represents. Completeness, perfection, wholeness. So when we see things like the seven churches that this message is to be delivered to, there's both specificity in these particular churches. They are written to for specific reasons, as we're gonna cover in more depth next week. Can't wait for that. And we're supposed to have the sense that what is written to these seven individual specifically chosen churches is also written to the whole. Wholeness, the whole church. And on turning to see the voice speaking to him, you would expect that John would see Jesus. John instead doesn't see Jesus. He sees seven golden lampstands. And right here, Revelation 1, verse 12, with symbols like this, right here with these golden lampstands, and on the back of the seven spirits that we talked about in week two, we're diving right into the heavy symbolism of the book of Revelation. He's not just going to account for things like it's a biography or, or an, a historic account. I saw not just Jesus, but, but seven golden lampstands and seven stars in the hands of one that was like the Son of Man. It's like when Joseph, back in the Old Testament, had, had dreams about stars and heads of grain bowing down to him. 
and later dealt with dreams of skinny cows eating fat cows. Interesting. The symbols in the dreams represented something that needed to be interpreted. We're supposed to be like Joseph when we read Revelation and have a sense of interpretation as we see things like lampstands and stars. Golden lampstands, they were valuable and practical. Not just lampstands, golden lampstands. Just like lampstands present in the tabernacle. Exodus 25 talks about lampstands in the very holy of holies, illuminating things in the very concentration of God's presence for others to see. And this is also true with the same purpose in the testimony of believers in the church. Jesus even talked about this in Mark chapter 4. He taught that a lamp, or in, in his case, a person's testimony, is not to be hidden. What do you do with a lamp? You put it, you don't hide it, you put it on a lampstand in order to illuminate things so that people can see where God is present. All these seven lampstands with one like the Son of Man in their midst, Jesus. More on him in just a sec. But there's one more seven that we encounter in this passage. Seven lampstands and seven stars in Jesus' right hand. Right hand always meaning biblically control. This wasn't in my notes, but pay attention that when, when Jesus lays his hand on John, who's scared to death, he lays his right hand on him. And Jesus translates this one for us and John. The stars are representing the angels or the messengers to the churches. We talked about this briefly in week one, but we're revisiting it a little bit more here. Now, while the stars could mean literal angelic beings, literal angels representing each of these seven churches, I think it's more likely that they're personifications of each church's identity. Because the Greek word angelos, that we translate in many of our uh, translations, angels, can either mean spiritual being angel or can mean messenger. And being that we don't see any of these angelos functionally playing a role in the account other than representing the message of the Lord to the church, to the people of the church, I stand with many commentators who, who hold that the messengers, these stars are messengers or personifications of each church's identity. That's what's intended here. And finally, we see the Son of Man. The Son of Man, the main character of Revelation. The glorified Jesus. John met the glorified Christ. You know, if we're not careful in Christendom or Christianity, um, we might forget that Jesus is way more than just his sliver of life on this earth, the three decades he lived. Don't get me wrong, the sliver of time that I just talked about was the most significant three decades this world has ever seen. But Jesus is way, way, way more than just his earthly life and his death and his resurrection. He was in the beginning with God. Before earth, before time. All things that are made are made through him. 
and he stands rightly glorified at the throne. The glorified Jesus, that's who John encounters here. And I'm gonna fast forward a bit to the part in the passage where he passes out. He says, I fell at his feet, though dead. John is completely overcome by what he sees, by what he experiences. And he falls in worship. He is utterly overcome. Good. But just make sure that it's right. It's appropriate. It's worthy of worship. It is here, in this case, it's right and worthy to worship here. But there will be two other times in Revelation where John, maybe even comically, although I'm not sure humor really plays into Revelation too much, will be similarly compelled by his experience to fall down in worship, and he gets scolded. I love this. Revelation 19, verses 9 through 10. And an angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. <laughs> Oops. Revelation 22, verses eight through nine. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard them and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. <laughs> I love that. Even in Revelation, John doesn't hold back. Still imperfect me. I think there's got to be a little comedy there. A smirk on his face as he wrote that. Yeah, I got a little carried away. But in all seriousness, there's a lesson there. A very, very important lesson for us. Be careful about what you worship. Even in the church world. Even in spiritual spaces, be careful about what compels you to worship. Be careful in experiencing the good things, the, the powerful agents of the kingdom that may overwhelm us with wonder and with emotion, and we just feel so overcome, we worship. Be careful what you're worshiping. Are you worshiping from the sense of emotion? Are you worshiping the experience and the setting, and the environment, and the messenger, or are you worshiping the God that it's all pointing to? Worship God. Worship is reserved for him. The glorified Jesus is described as the son of man, or being like the son of man. That's a term, the son of man. That's a term, you'll never guess where it can be found. The Old Testament. <laughs> Daniel 7, 13 through 14, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, that should ring a bell, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. This Son of man was actually Jesus' preferred self-designation. 
It was his preferred title for himself. John 1, 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Man, I I just want to pause there because for Jesus' favorite term about himself, his preferred self-designation to be the Son of Man, for the glorified Jesus to identify so closely with mankind, what grace. For all of eternity, that's the title he likes the best. Tells you what he thinks about us, doesn't it? To John... Jesus appears as one like the Son of Man or a Son of Man, human-like but surpassing, magnificent splendor, awe, and reverence. And, And John launches off into his description about him, doesn't he? He says he was clothed in a long robe, a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze, his voice like the roar of many waters, holding seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. With, with each of those, he's not just bumbling forward, spilling out words. Each of those represents something very important about the glorified Christ. You have righteousness, clothed in a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. You have justice. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, pure, like snow, clean, unblemished. We know something about snow these days, don't we? Wrath. Oh, you may not like it that the glorified Jesus has perfect wrath, but scripture's clear about this. Wrath. Eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, not meek and mild in this glorious state. And power, a voice like the roar of many waters, holding in his right hand, remembering that that means power, that means control, seven stars. And from his mouth comes a two-edged sword. Anybody got that one? (laughs) That's... That's the word of God. Ephesians 6, 17, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's a weapon. The sword is a weapon. Searching hearts and bringing righteousness. But the sword is a weapon usually wielded by hand, right? Yeah. But Jesus' offense is unlike any power wielded by the world. Christ conquers the world. Let me repeat that. Christ conquers the world through his death and his resurrection, and he wields his power by faithful witness to his saving purpose. By the word, by the sword. That's how he conquers. It's all the weapon he effectively needs to conquer. 
John encounters the glorified Jesus, the one who was in the beginning and is alive, even though he faced and conquered death and now stands at the right hand of the Father, the glorified Christ. And to think that you could possibly stand and take this in and remain erect would be sheer hubris. And just like Moses at the burning bush, John doesn't. He can't stand. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. (laughs) This is the best part. You've got to picture this. Quivering, overwhelmed, scared to death, old man John essentially passes out. And to him, Jesus comes and he, he lays his right hand upon him. And says, fear not, it's me. I'm in control. Fear not, it's me. I'm in control. Who needs to hear that? Fear not, it's me. I am in control. The ultimate focus of revelation is not the rapture. It's not the tribulation. It's not Israel or the church. It's not even the new heaven or the new earth. It's him. Fear not. It's me. I am in control. Some of the best words in all of revelation. I'm in control, John. Beyond time, as we talked about, he says he is the first and the last. That's a call back to last week's foundation of time. He says, I'm in control beyond nations, beyond persecution and rebellion. As he says, he is the living one. They couldn't conquer me. I'm in control beyond death. As he says, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys to death in Hades. Hades, or could be translated Sheol, as translated other places in scripture, denotes the grave. Or this is a term that I bet you're not very familiar with in Christian circles, the netherworld. (laughs) When's the last time you heard a sermon about the netherworld. It sounds like something out of a Marvel movie, doesn't it? Regardless of the name, Hades, Sheol, grave, netherworld, it's all a place after death. And Jesus says right here, as holder of the keys, I'm the gatekeeper. To those who would have otherwise locked themselves in, Those who would have otherwise locked themselves in Hades or Sheol or the destiny of all mankind, I have come so that they may come through the gate through me, by me. Jesus said in John 10, 7 through 9, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. God's got something about sheep and shepherds. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. 
If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. This is good, good news. So old man John, write this. Jesus says again in in verse 19, repetition there, just like he said in verse 11, I want you to write this, bringing the sense of permanency, the sense of exactness and shareability of this prophecy. Write this book, share this, send it from the son of man in control. He is the head of the church. Oh, thank you, God. I love Pastor Derry. And I love the role that I get called to. And I love pastor friends throughout this community and across the world and across all of history. But thank God that Jesus is the head of the church. He is your lead pastor. He's your example. He's your hope. He's your promise. He is unchanging and faithful, and living, and brilliant, and the reason that even the gates of hell will never be able to prevail against his church. I'm just thankful we get to be a part of that. Write this book from the Son of Man in control to the church in tribulation. Great tribulation. Terrible tribulation that was, and is, and is yet to occur. Revelation does not tell us it'll all be fine. Revelation tells us amidst the tribulation that we've seen and that we can see right now in our world and have yet to see that God will be worshiped. And his people need to know that. They need to hear this work and endure. Hang in there. Write this book from the Son of Man in control to the church in tribulation in the spirit, supernaturally enabled, overwhelmed in the possession of the spirit for his purposes, from his beyond time perspective and meeting his people exactly where they need to be met. We're in for quite the unveiling. And look at that. You're through a full chapter of Revelation. Give yourself a pat on the back. (laughs) Next week, we're gonna look at exactly what the head of the church has to say concerning the responsibility and the accountability of the church. I will tell you this. In many ways, this is some of the clearest and most practical pieces of Revelation with a really cool ending. Can't wait. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's study. If you're interested in giving for ministry and service information and much more, visit our website at timberlinechurch.org. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.